greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Open the pod bay doors, Al. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. You dance with the devil in the pale moonlight. What? You'll shoot your eye out, kid. The price is wrong, bitch. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Welcome to Critics Not Cynics, the podcast that tries to prove that you can be a critic without being a cynic. And on this week's episode of the podcast, we're going to be covering episodes four and five of Star Trek Picard with my special guest, Leslie. And uh, we will also then be taking a short little break, which will be playing the trailer for our feature review of The Lighthouse. So, Leslie, say hi to everybody. Hey. <laughs> well, <laughs> it seems like uh, our, you know, three episode review of the first three episodes has been fairly popular. Um, it's been kind of gathering a lot of steam. And so hopefully everyone's kind of liked our, our talking about and our reviews of those episodes. So I certainly hope so. <laughs> uh, well, you know, if they come back from for these two, we'll definitely know. Uh, I think we'll be back on more of a like a regular schedule where we'll be doing one episode per week. Uh, it just ha- so happened with doing a Valentine's Day episode last week that we just didn't I wasn't really ready to record a whole nother episode. Um, but I am excited about to talk about these two episodes and I'll be joined with my normal co-host Pat uh, later on for the Lighthouse review. So when it sounds a little bit different uh, later on in the show, that's why. Um, <laughs> all right. So we're going to talk about. Episode four of Star Trek Picard, Absolute Candor. And uh, the premise of this one is the journey uh, the crew's journey to Free Cloud takes a detour when Picard orders a stop at the planet Vashti, where Picard and Rafi relocated Romulan refugees 14 years earlier. Upon arrival, Picard reunites with Elnor, a young Romulan he befriended during the relocation. Meanwhile, Nara continues his attempts to learn more about Soji, while Narissa's impatience with his lack of progress grows. Um, so much like, uh, the past couple episodes, we're opening up with a a flashback. We're on planet Vashti in the beta quadrant. Um, this is the kind of Romulan relocations, uh, hub where they are, um, kind of just taking refugees from Romulus to, uh, this planet as kind of a way station. At least that's how I took it. What'd you think of that? I, um, I think some of them were meant to settle there and others definitely were meant to just be there for a while before they were taken to a different planet. Yeah, that, that was kind of my read. Like the, uh, the I'm, I'm going to get the name wrong, but the Kalat Najaj or whatever, uh, the K- kind of... Kalat Milat or something? Yeah, they're, they're, it was really, I tried to write it down, but I know I have, I have the wrong it, name for it. But the, It's much easier to just say warrior nuns. Exactly. The Romulan <laughs> warrior nuns, I think like that is their kind of like sanctuary and so like they were kind of maybe overseeing things and helping the federation with 
kind of like the way station part of it or helping just the regular Romulans that were just going to stay there and relocate there. Um, so we also have this young little Romulan who is running through and, of course, steals fruit and being a little jerk kind of when he yells back, bite me. Um, <laughs> I didn't know there was really Romulan for that, but that's that's always fun. Um, so then we uh, we see Picard beaming down to give an update to the Romulans about the evacuation fleet and everything. And uh, he goes to visit the Romulan warrior nuns. Um, uh, of course, this young Romulan is Elnor and he, uh, you know, kind of arrives before Picard shows up uh, at their kind of little sanctuary place and says, that, oh, he's here. He's here. Um, and Picard walks in and he has a gift for him, which is the three Musketeers, which as any Star Trek Next Generation fan knows, that's kind of big. Uh, you know, it's one of Picard's favorites. We had multiple holodeck episodes of, uh, you know, Data and, and Worf and um, uh, Riker, Jordy, all of them kind of doing uh, three Musketeer episodes. Uh, so it was kind of a nice little little throwback uh, to Next Generation. Um, and of course, I also I thought this was funny, too, because the, the like head head nun uh, tells Eleanor that he's not really fond of children. And oh, yeah. um, Eleanor kind of gets a little little upset about it. And he's like, oh, you're not here to like see me or you're not fond of me. And Picard is like, no, I am here. And it's nice growth for, for Picard. Um, yeah, I think he was interacting with Elnor far better than he has with children that we've seen, you know, in previous episodes of Star Trek where he was just so uncomfortable. Right. And I think that's kind of it's it's natural growth, because if you remember and I don't know the episode specifically, but uh, I believe there was the episode in Next Generation where like he gets trapped with a group of kids and then he has to rely on the kids to like kind of help uh get out of the situation. I can't remember if they got stuck on, yeah. a, on a turbo lift or something like that. Yeah, they were that, um, that was the episode I believe where, um, Troy ends up in command of the ship because they hit some sort of filament or something. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. it basically knocks out like all the electrics in the, in the system. Um, I'm pre- I think it's called Disaster, and it might be in season four. I think that's just my guess. Right. Uh, fact checkers go fact checking. <laughs> but but it's a it's a nice growth because like Picard always didn't like kids. Uh, you know he was never a huge fan of of Wesley, uh, although Wesley grew on him throughout the the show. Um, but I think it's because of that particular episode and him uh, actually bonding with those children in that kind of crisis moment, a, a bit of him kind of finally started to soften a little bit. And when you get to also like even uh, his nephew uh, later on in the series, and then of course in generations, his nephew dies like he, and he's never had any children himself and he's had no one that's really kind of had this to carry on his own lineage. And I feel like based on these kind of scenes that we're seeing here at the beginning of this episode, Eleanor is kind of like his surrogate son. And I really like that relationship that they developed there. Um, so, uh, you know, he is the only boy in this uh, kind of group because it's only uh, women that are a part of this kind of uh, warrior group, assassin group. Um, 
And uh, also, I, I did want to. I also wonder if there's a male equivalent because there's this female group. Uh, I would assume that the closest thing to the male equivalent would be the Tao Shiar, because as they as uh, it's said, like later on in the episode, I believe um, Picard said, like the Tao Shiar are kind of afraid of them. Um, <laughs> now that not that the Tao Shiar is like exclusively male, but I, I we kind of see it more male dominated a little bit. And uh, if it's kind of if they're afraid of, of this sect, then it's kind of the opposite, the equi- like equivalent version of them on that side. Yeah. Um, and I also wanted to mention that this episode and also the next episode, they were both uh, directed by Jonathan Frakes who played Riker on next generation. And I, I, once I realized that I could kind of see some of his hallmarks. Um, but we also get a nice, like little, uh, kind of cute sword training, um, scene that I, I really enjoyed, uh, it's, it's Patrick Stewart kind of like at his best, um, when doing kind of those kind of classical roles. So like three musketeers and kind of doing those stances and everything. Uh, and this is also intercut with him reading, uh, three musketeers to, uh, Elnor. Um, but everything kind of gets interrupted, uh, with the disastrous news from Rafi that, um, that Mars has been attacked and, uh, we can kind of even see that Eleanor is kind of crying off at the side as Picard has to uh, leave. And this is kind of a sad moment. And I don't know, uh, and I don't understand this completely, except that kind of, and this would go along with where we saw Picard in like the first three episodes, why Picard wouldn't have ever gone back during this kind of 14 year gap. Um, and I think it's kind of more of a, like, cause he put himself in that self-imposed exile. Like he considered himself a failure. This was his biggest, uh, loss that he ever faced as a Starfleet officer. And, um, maybe that's why like it, it hurt too much. Cause he felt like he failed, uh, which he mentions even later on in the episode, like that he failed the Romulans. Uh, do you have any thoughts? Um, uh, yeah, I would pretty much just agree with all of that. Cause yeah, when you're thinking about the scale of that failure, because Romulus is an empire of itself. It's not just the one Romulan planet, right? right? And they're trying to get, I think they said like almost 900 billion people relocated or something, yeah, like, something that like that to get them out of the wave of, or the shock wave of the supernova. So like that's a significant number of people that you have promised you're going to help to then lose and maybe only help a, like a quarter of them. If, if that, I think he, I think it only ended up being like maybe 5 million or something like that. I know it was like a drastically lower number and it was more in, in depth in the conversation with the uh, former Senator that he has later on in the episode. Uh, so if you guys want to go back and, and watch that episode, I think that's where it's more uh, explicitly detailed about how many actually made it out because they talk about how many, they loaded onto the ships before and then they never were able to kind of go back um, to save any more after the uh, attack on Mars. Um, so now we're kind of back uh, in the present. We've got the, the ship heading uh, toward Vashti. Of course, we don't know that at this time, but uh, you and I both like this. Um, Agnes is uh, kind oh. of being the the everyday person who is like, Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to go into space. And then once they're there and they realize like the actual length and time it would take to get from point A to point B it is extremely bored. 
Yeah. And that's why I think they show you even more so on The Next Generation that they have all of these recreational activities that you can do in the holodecks and like gym that you can go to and the hair place that you can get your hair done and all of this stuff that you can do to keep you entertained so that you can get to from point A to point B and not be bored to death. Yeah, she read like all of her back issues of her science magazines. She's uh, watered his plant, Rios's plants and she is just like not having it. And uh, there's a nice like little fun uh, interaction that they have. Um, Also, I I had a note that I and you and I both talked about this, that warp now looks too much like Star Wars hyperspace. And I'm not not a huge fan of that. No, I didn't like that either, just because, I mean, people often get a lot of sci-fi things confused anyway, and I like when certain ones have, like, you know, have their own thing. Right, right. And and that just is looking way too much like the hyperdrive, like when you see the Millennium Falcon go into hyperdrive, and I don't think that the warp effect should look like that. Right. And I'm wondering, I'm like telling myself, ah, it's like a screensaver he put up on the screen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like it, and it's so kind of like iconic in, in next generation where it's just like the streaks of the stars moving by really fast. And I, kind of miss that. Like I didn't mind it so much when, uh, with the, uh, JJ Abrams movies where like they would kind of show from the outside the ship and it would look like it was in a tunnel because it, it still wasn't like a front view. And even when you got to like kind of the front view, it looked more, more or less the same of what you saw in like next generation. And so I don't, I don't know why they made this choice and it's a small nitpick. I mean, it's not anything that just destroys the whole show for me, but like you said, you know, people have a hard time kind of keeping certain sci-fi franchises separate from each other that, uh, doing something very, very similar to another just doesn't doesn't help any. But um, right, we we get Rios kind of facing inner demons and uh, you know telling uh, Agnes asks him like what he's reading or what it's about and it's dealing with what is it the existential knowledge of knowing you're going to die or something like that. Yeah, it's 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 your sense of something about the sense that you get because we live with the consciousness of knowing that we're going to die. And she, she has such a great, great like moment with that too. Cause she's just like, Oh, I totally want to talk about that. Ba 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 ba. And you can tell she, she does it, but she's so bored out of her mind that she's like, sure. I will have this de- very depressing conversation. Uh, and, and of course he's completely annoyed by this too. And uh, I, I thought it was a little fun interaction and kind of, seeing more of the crew uh, interact. And like, this was, this is kind of what the biggest problem with discovery has been is we don't get those individual interactions between the crew, uh, like the bridge crew, even it's, it's all about Michael Burnham and uh, maybe Saru and uh, uh, Oh God, Tilly. I, you know, that's, that's bad. See, that's, that's part of the problem. Like I can remember Rios. I can remember Rafi. I can remember Agnes. I can remember Elnor and Picard. Like they've done such a good job of establishing these characters and having them have individual interactions with each other. Whereas the bridge crew on discovery, like other than three characters, I can barely remember anybody else on the bridge crew because they're just kind of more fill-ins or stand-ins. They're in the background they're supposed to play important parts in, in the show, but they don't feel like it because they don't have any meaningful interactions. It's just burn them, burn them, burn them. 
And so I think that that's what Picard is doing right, despite what people might be saying about it being a diverse cast or that they're not focusing enough on on Jean-Luc. It's doing enough. And I I think that's also an invalid criticism because Next Generation was never all just about Jean-Luc. It was it was about the crew of the Enterprise. And yeah, I think that that criticism would probably just come up because this is the Picard show. True. But I think even like we were discussing just a couple minutes ago about his growth with children and how he interacts with them, I think we're taking looks at him. So it doesn't have to be like first point, you know, um, first person point of view. Like we're looking at Picard to be able to step back and look and see him interacting with a child and seeing how far he's grown. It doesn't have to be so direct in your face like it is in Discovery with Burnham, 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 which is why I tapped out. Right. And and even that, like, uh, I would say, like, even though people might be saying, well, it's a little too focused on these other characters, I would still say that uh, of the of the episodes that we've had so far, I'd say he dominates the screen about 75% of the time. Like it's still, it's Picard's mission and these people are there helping him. And he's at the point also in his life where like he, he's of course very old. So he's not going to be doing, um, you know, these kind of missions on his own. He's not like Kirk going and fighting a Gorn by himself age anymore. He has getting his shirt ripped off. (laughs) Yeah. He he's having, he's having to, um, rely on other people. In fact, there's, even a line later on in the episode where he's like, Oh, do I need to go down on my knees? And he's like, please no. Like they're, they're not what they used to be. <laughs> so, you know, it, cause we don't know how long Patrick Stewart has left on this earth. Hopefully it's, it's plenty of time and plenty of years that we can get uh, a, quite a few seasons out of him for the show, but he's not the man he was 20, 30 years ago. He's just, it's, it's human life. It's age. It, it, it just is what it is. So I think like Picard, the show is doing this to introduce us to some characters that although we're focusing on Picard or we're meant to focus on Picard, who can still yet do some of those action sequences like more so in uh, in episode five, then Picard can at the at his current age. And if you don't like those characters or if you don't know about those characters and where they come from, uh, then there would be no reason that 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 those moments would interest you. Um, um, I also think that the characters are all kind of, there's something about them, each one of them, that's sort of like a foil for him or a mirror for him. Yes. Like, I think Rios is definitely like what he could have, he could have been if things went a different way for him. Right. You know, if any one of these other previous disasters that Picard encountered, you know, back even on his days on the Stargazer, he could have been a Rios. Well, even and I think Rios can also look at Picard and see I could have been that. Right. But and you whatever bring up, it is that uh, happened in his past prevented him from going on that. And I think it's kind of the same with each of the characters, and you get kind of a nice little mirror for mirror look at each other. Yeah, and you bring up the Stargazer, uh, and that's a really good point because the the episode where like the Ferengi used the Stargazer against him in Next Generation, like that's very much like a Rios moment because in that episode, he's tortured by that past that happened on the Stargazer and, and his final mission on it. And um, and it's loomed over him all those years before kind of having that closure. That's currently the state that Rios is at now with whatever happened in his past that's currently haunting him and why he's haunting himself with he, with his uh, holograms on his ship. Like 
it's that's very much the same. And um, like with uh, Elnor, Elnor is kind of that childlike wonder that Picard has about space. Um, it's a little bit same with Agnes, too, or at least with Agnes. It's the curiosity of finding what's out there. And uh, Rafi, like it's it's the taking those personal losses and then internalizing them and and torturing yourself also for something that may have been out of your control, but you take it so personally. So I think you've got that spot on that. These are all kind of reflections of himself and he can see it and acknowledge it and try to help them. Whereas then they can look at him as kind of a, a a light at the end of the tunnel that they can achieve that point of clarity and, um, and closure in their lives that they can then live better lives. Uh, so that's a very, very good point. Um, so now Rafi of course is angry. They've diverted their course from free cloud. Uh, Rios mentions that they're going to Vashti. Um, so now we're in the, in the holodeck and it's set up like Chateau Picard. And you and I were talking about this. Um, of course, like I, I wrote down, uh, Chateau Picard ready room, uh, why, (laughs) why it would have been, um, why it would have been Chateau Picard. And now one thing that kind of confused me, and I don't know if the um, hospitality program was talking that it was Zaban because he says you're Mr. Chibon. And I'm yeah, not, I think that's who he meant. Okay. Yeah. Cause like, I'm like, cause it wasn't necessarily that Picard requested this, but that somebody sent this to them to uh, create for him. And I was kind of personally like, wondering why Picard would have necessarily picked that uh, if he was willing to leave it so easily and he felt like it was a cage. But as you and I discussed for a practical standpoint outside of the workings of the show, it's an easy set they already have built that they can right. easily use for like his ready room and uh, have these meetings without having to spend money on doing different sets. Uh, considering right. And it's an, it's an easy throwaway line to say that Jabon sent the scans and yeah. he thought, you know, it'd make you feel at home. Right. Right. So it, it ends up working. Um, and the, also the hospitality program is talking with Picard and he, they're talking a little bit about Rios and, uh, the hologram says, well, he keeps his own company, which is very obvious considering every <laughs> hologram has, has been Rios. Uh, and Rios for some reason hates this program. Don't know why, yeah. uh, you go ahead and, and, and give, uh, give some thoughts on that. I just felt like the level of hostility when he says how much he hates him is just does didn't land for me particularly. Again, it's another F bomb. Yeah. I still don't feel like the cursing is landing. There is some cursing. I feel like in the next episode that I'm like, okay, this is where I feel like it lands. Yeah. It works. But in this episode, again, I'm like, it just doesn't work here. But like I said to you, I think they're just trying to show us, look how much he hates himself. <laughs> But but it's like you've, you've already shown us that with various other things. I felt like if the hospitality program had been doing something really annoying or was like getting around in everybody's face, that maybe that level of hostility would be justified. But he's literally just standing there and and then, you know, shuts off. And I'm like, I don't. I don't know. That just didn't work for me. That's just that piece. But that's just a nitpick of mine. Well, I'm wondering I'm wondering if it's mainly because it's so nice, like it doesn't have a moment where it kind of questions anything he says. Whereas, as we've seen from the navigation hologram and the EMH, uh, they 
are willing to like talk back to him a little bit um, more so than the navigation hologram uh, when they had that moment before, um, you know, he uh, accepts or when he's like ex- thinking about accepting Picard's um, offer. He's like, you know, kind of has that back and forth where it's more of a, ther- a therapy session. Uh, and the medical hologram is just like the one that's like, yeah, you know, I'm your it's it's like a bones kind of thing. Like it's yeah. uh, I'm your damn doctor. I'm going to you know do everything I can to save you. Um, but you're not going to necessarily like it. Whereas the hospitality program would probably be like, yeah, sure. You want to hit me a few times? Go ahead. Like it just <laughs> it's it's I'm wondering if it's something like that where it's just it's too nice and he doesn't like it being nice. Um, well, uh, one of my other like questions or issues with this is why can't you just change it? <laughs> why can't you make it somebody else, you know, or give it a scan it and make it like a different person or just completely, you know, delete the program or something. Because I'm like, it's your ship. You own the ship and everything on it. Why don't you just change it if you hate it so much? So that's where I think it's coming back to. It's supposed to be showing us that this, conflict that he has with himself and how much he hates himself that he's got to torture himself with himself right 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 and and i do hope and i have i have a feeling we'll, we'll be getting that episode here uh sooner than later uh we do get i, I do want to get this background with him i know um as we were talking before we started recording kind of one of my issues now is that the past like four episodes have all been like flashback episodes at the or flashback at the beginning of the episode um, yeah, that, I, I think we'll probably get another one for him. Right. And uh, as much as like I, I, I've kind of it's kind of dragging on me a little bit each episode through. I do want to see his like I do want an explanation kind of like why is he this tortured soul? I, I like the mystery around it and I like that they're kind of teasing us with bits of that. But uh, at some point they're going to have to come out and tell us because uh we, we need we need to understand this this self-loathing um but while they're there they're kind of together they're uh discussing about going to vashti uh you know rafi's not for it um it's no longer kind of the the peaceful place it was uh the fenris rangers were the ones that were kind of keeping law and order in the in that sector um but now this kind of i'm, I'm just gonna say jab of the hut type character uh, has kind of moved in. He's got an antique bird of prey. Um, there's mentions of the Romulan rebirth movement, which doesn't get any kind of explanation. Uh, I know that when Picard finally gets down to the planet, I noticed this my second time, a bunch of Romulans are wearing these kind of armbands. And um, I'm, I'm assuming that that's kind of the symbol for the Romulan rebirth movement. Um he no, of course. Yeah, he talk- I assumed it's just one of those like purist kind of movements where like they don't want the Romulans to intermarry with any other species and things like that, like Romulus for Romulans and right. Like I, I, I do feel like they're trying to make the Vashti like new Romulus essentially. Um, like because we when he does get down there, we do see like Romulans only, which. I don't know why, unless you have like human settlers on this planet as well, like at, at different areas uh, across the planet. If you're a Romulan only planet, why would you and you don't get a whole lot of visitors anyways? Why would you have a sign that says Romulans only other than for the effect of the episode when Picard gets down there? Yeah, um, I think that, that the one nun is her name Zani. Mm hmm. 
that Picard was talking to had said that there are Terrans on the planet as well. And, and that would make sense. Like that was that was the thing that kind of crossed my mind is like, OK, if they would have it up, if there were kind of other little settlements that were were non Romulan and, uh, you know, maybe Terran or Andorian or even Vulcan, you know, anyone that kind of went out there to settle that planet. Um so he kind of explains to them that he wants to stop there to uh, get the get the warrior nuns um, help for their mission. Um, he talks about the the absolute candor, which is total communication without filter or emotion. Um, so he's going to they'll be able to tell them, no, uh, we're not going to help your cause because of blah, blah, blah. Um, but really, it's kind of a. It's it's him wanting to get back and visit Elnor since he hasn't seen Elnor in the past 14 years. Um, so now we jump to the board cube for a very short uh, scene. It's uh, Soji kind of doing that little um, Romulan game that Ramda was doing uh, when they had their interaction in the previous episode. And there's a recording she's watching where they're talking about uh, Gamadon, I think is the name of it. And it's the day of annihilation. And you and I've kind of had this theory or thought that um, why the Romulans hate um, artificial intelligence or, or synthetics so much is possibly maybe somewhere in their in their past, in their history, like hundreds of years ago or something like that, that maybe either the Borg had attacked their planet and they managed to, you know, fend them off and uh, and send them away or they toyed with synthetics. They had an uprising and they had, um, you know, had to do whatever they could to win, uh, like basically the Terminator war uh, with these synthetics. Uh, Very I, uh, Battlestar Galactica and Cylon. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's that's what would make sense, uh, especially because like she mentions that the, the term for the destroyer again, and that's what she was calling Soji now why or how this is kind of all connected we still don't know yet but we we have to we understand now that something has happened in romulus's past that they have been so kind of anti uh artificial intelligence in synthetic life robotics that they only program their stuff for basic uh calculations and whatnot um so then we head back to vashti We've got the plant. We get told about the planetary shield um, that there's transit zones every 30 minutes. But when you get the OK, you can only you have like a minute to pass through uh, and they don't really want to let Picard in. But thanks to good old fashioned bribing, um, they do let Picard beam down uh, and he is noticing very much that this is a different place than 14 years ago. Uh, as I mentioned, there was the the Romulans only sign at the bar. Uh, everyone's a little kind of dire. Uh, in, in fact, uh, and you were kind of mentioning this to me uh, at work. Um, so in the 14 years ago flashback, it seemed more vibrant that the that the characters were kind of wearing more vibrant clothing. Uh, it was normal life. Everyone was kind of happy. But now we're in 14 years later. Everyone's kind of wearing more drab clothing. It's dour. It's serious. Uh, but you were mentioning kind of like the diversity amongst the, how the Romulans all looked, uh, costumes yeah, and whatnot. I was, I was sorry. No, you're fine. 
Uh, I was just looking at it more as not only diversity in race, but diversity in character design. Yeah. You can see that some of their clothing, like a group of them will have similar-ish clothing, and then another one will have different clothing just to, like, signify different regions that they may have come from, and also with the the hair and makeup as well. So they don't all look the same. We don't have everybody in the same, like, greens and tans that we did in The Next Generation with the same bowl cut. Right. Right. And, and it's just little details like that that I just really appreciated. And and I agree. And and like I didn't even really kind of think of the the kind of the difference between 14 years ago and and now until just actually get, getting to that point. Um but yeah, it, it is it does seem like kind of everyone's more lively at the beginning of the episode because they've got this kind of hope uh that everyone's going to be saved the federation and starfleet are stepping in uh they're all going to be okay and then of course after the disaster and 14 years of uh you know travesty and and uh poverty poverty and no one kind of watching out for them other than having this planetary shield the rangers that were kind of um taking care of them have now abandoned them that, yeah, they've kind of grown to have this kind of hate and dour and uh, just are not very welcoming people. Um, but he does go back to the um, like kind of the sanctuary for the nuns. And we see the grown up Elnor uh, who kind of just stops in his tracks as soon as he sees Picard. Um, we jump back to the Borg cube and uh, this is a little bit longer scene, and I um, some of it feels a little bit out of place, a place with me. Other parts of it seems fine, um, but they they're over. Soji's kind of looking at Ramda. She's being um, kind of scanned for some things. It's not really explained what. I'm assuming she's kept under sedation because of uh, her attempt to kill herself in the previous episode. But Narek shows up. She doesn't know how he knew where to find. Uh, finder and then they just have this kind of little brief conversation about their their current state and then they go and kind of find it really weird that there's a bar now on the board cube um, <laughs> well it's for other people not for Borg. So. true i mean yeah it, it's definitely like now every kind of room now especially like the quarters and stuff like i gotta remind myself like this has been a a board cube that's been reclaimed They've made changes to it, but it just seems a little weird. But I, I yeah, there's, you know, people working on there. Of course, they have to have a place to go and and relax. But we have a little intense conversation between Soji and Eric. Uh, kind of she asks if he's Tao Shiar. He says no. And she, of course, she goes, well, would you say that if you were? And he says yes. Um, and then she wants to kind of get into the Borg uh, files to see what went on with the, the uh, assimilation with the Romulan, Romulan ship uh, and Ramda's crew. And he says he he um, he knows how to get her that information, but that doesn't end up actually happening. Instead, he uh, takes her somewhere and it's a cute. This is a cute scene, but I feel like it's out of place, as you and I have talked about, um, where they're having a fun like moment where they're just sliding through the halls and, and having fun and uh kind of romantic but this would have felt more in place had it been in like episode two to kind of show the evolution of their relationship like instead of them immediately hooking up in episode two and kind of being a couple like this should have kind of happened there 
And then we see them kind of starting to fall for each other. Uh, it would have played a little bit better for me. I, I don't know about you. Yeah, it it would have definitely made a lot more sense to have been something they showed us earlier, especially, like you said, because they just cut straight to them sleeping together, that this would have shown the development of their relationship. I think what they were going for here, though, was that conversation they have after they've slid around that hallway about him saying, well, but there's no um, record of you actually having been on that passenger ship at all. Uh, yeah. It's just your memory and a, and, like, you're actually... I think he said, like, her name was there, but there's no one who can verify that she was actually on the ship. Right, right. And this was, of course, as he mentions later on to his sister, this was the first seed of doubt that he's planting in her mind. Um, so whether or not like that actual information is true or not, which I would assume it is because I would expect her to go and research that information to verify his claims. Um, this is him starting to get her to be... Uh, a little more suspicious, not necessarily of him, although she now is because she doesn't like how that conversation played out and she kind of leaves him there in the hall. Um, but yeah, this um, this is that kind of moment where he's starting to kind of turn her to his means. Um, and then we jump back to Vashti and we got Picard being in danger. Um, they're saying that the kind of the gang lord guy is on his way uh, and, you know, they need to get out of there. But Picard makes this case to, to Elnor. Um, Elnor is kind of, this is the conversation where he's like, OK, do I have to get out, down on my knees? And because uh, I don't really want to get down on my knees. They're not what they used to be. Uh, and Elnor no, goes, no, you just have to tell me a story. And he talks about data and kind of fills him in on everything we've seen in the past few episodes. But in anger, Elnor says no, because, well, now it's just you have a use for me. It's not because you want me to be with you. It's because you need me uh, because I am this trained kind of assassin killer. And I don't think he's wrong. No, um, I don't think that that's necessarily all of like Picard's intent. Uh, oh, no, I, I agree with that. I, but I think Picard didn't answer his question when Elnor says, why do you need me, not true. someone? And I think Picard still showing that not being totally comfortable, even with his own feelings. Yeah. He kind of evades it a little bit and he doesn't really give Elnor his true answer. And Elnor knows that and he's upset. Right. Yeah. Because because it's definitely this is Picard's want to make amends with Elnor uh, and his his guilt of having abandoned him. But like you said, it's not him willing to openly say that to Elnor, um, which makes it a little bit weird when we get into a little bit further here in the scene. Um, it's seven minutes before Picard can beam back up aboard the ship. Uh, he tears down the Romulan only sign at the bar. He's trying to get served. Of course, no one wants to serve him. Uh, and then this is where the foreman Romulan Senator comes in and confronts him. He, uh, this actually, this guy earlier on, we see him in the scene when Picard first beams down. And I, I believe he is the one who kind of makes the gang lord aware because he kind of hits a bit of a calm, but we don't see anything or hear anything he says. Um, and so he confronts him, talks about how he was the great Picard and how his grandiose speech about how he was going to save all the Romulans and how they fit like five million on the Nightingale to uh, come here and then it just stopped and, uh, you know, the rest of Romulus was destroyed. 
um, which Picard, he, he admits his, his failure. He admits his defeat. And he says, we let you down. I let you down. Um, but this is not good enough for the, the former senator. And so he wants to have a sword fight with Picard. Picard doesn't want to do it, yet he forces him to kind of have a little bit of a sword fight. Uh, but then Picard throws his sword away and is like, no, I'm not doing this. And Elnor shows up um, and says, choose to live, which I, I, I kind of like that that bit. Uh, and of course, they choose uh, poorly. Um, and he ends up killing or killing or slicing the first Romulan and does this really cool kind of like kick flip around to like then decapitate the former Senator, um, which I thought was just a really cool sequence. It was pretty quick, but I, I liked how it was choreographed. Uh, and then of course they beat finally beam up onto the ship uh, and Picard chews him out for, oh, yeah. for killing the, the Senator. And he's like, he did not deserve that. And Elnor's like, well, hey, I warned him. Uh, but Picard's like, no, if you're if you are binding yourself to my cause, you will attack when I tell you to uh, not the other way around. And I thought that was actually a good moment. Um, it was kind of showing that Picard will only take those means if absolutely necessary. And it also shows that there was he wasn't invalidating any of the claims that the Romulan senator was making. Like he didn't disagree that the Federation and Starfleet like let them down. And so it was very interesting scene. Um, and then of course, yeah, when you think about the level of being let down, yeah, like of, of your, we were taking these people and we're dropping them on this planet, but you think about, they're going to need supplies, you know, they're going to need to eat. What are they going to build? Where are they going to live? I mean, there's like a, just an overwhelming like, amount of logistics that the Starfleet and the Federation just dropped. Yeah. Yeah. And and as we kind of get on into uh, when we get into episode five, it's almost like maybe uh, intentionally dropped. I'll leave it at that. Um, but uh, they uh, Picard, is, of course, informs them that he has bound himself to their cause and that they only bind themselves to lost causes. And you and I had kind of discussed this, like, why would this group do that? And uh, I think we came to the consensus that they would only do this as a means of like, it's a worthy challenge and it's a challenge to try to prove that the cause uh, or it's an achievement if they can uh, achieve the cause. Uh, yeah, something like that, because otherwise, like I, I believe I think you said, wouldn't they just end up dying for all these lost causes? Right, right. Like they, they would have to be like it's it's the. Uh, thrill of putting oneself to this cause with the absolute intent to prove kind of everyone wrong. Um, so as, uh, and we kind of have one final scene back on the board cube. Uh, I know it's Narissa, but I'm still going to probably end up calling her Rizzo cause it's a little bit easy, uh, easier. Uh, but Rizzo wakes Narek up in bed. Uh, this is again, weird Cersei, Jamie type relationship. Way sexual. <laughs> um, uh, especially when she chokes him a little bit near the end of the scene. It's like, this is, this is creepy. This is really creepy. And I, I, I think that they're like intentionally doing that. Like they're, they're not just like wanting to be, Hey, we're going to be creepy for the sake of, of creepy. Like, I feel like there's, there's more of a reason behind this. At least I certainly hope so. 
I, um, I think, I don't know. I feel like it's mostly just to get the creepy factor at yeah, this point. Yeah, that, that could very well be. Um, but she's not kind of happy with this, like, slow progression, but he's mentioning, like, hey, I can't push her too much, otherwise she will become activated, and then we'll have another situation as Earth, and uh, we can't afford to lose this one because the goal is to kill them all. If we activate her and we are forced to kill her, we don't know where these other ones are, which he makes a great point. I mean, it it is a very good point. And I think his method is working. I think you agreed on that, too. Yeah, I agree. I think when uh, not that I agree with the murderer. Right. 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 But but when in this conversation, I do think his point and his way of doing things is is more valid than hers, because, you know, that you are working with you know, an android, a synthetic life form that can like bend titanium like it's nothing. So of course, I don't think attacking it head on and activating it is the smartest way to go about finding the information you need. Right, right. And and I think like with his planning that kind of seed of doubt in there and uh, of course she gives him like a week for it to work. Otherwise, she's finally stepping in. I think through the means of him doing that, his intent is she will start doing the research into her own background. And by doing that research, she will uncover kind of where these other um, synthetics are. And so I think that's really his intent. Although I'm still kind of on the thought that he does really, truly have feelings for her. Um, Yeah. I think at the end, we'll probably see that. Yeah. But he is playing her curiosity. He knows how intelligent and curious she is and that she will do the research, like you said. Right. It's one of those things where, like, when you're kind of undercover and you're working, like, in television and books, of course, not necessarily in real life. But, like, when you're working so close to your your subject or to your target and even though you know you're supposed to be, like, keeping yourself a little bit distant and objective, you can't kind of help the... Of course, he's not human, but Romulan feeling, I guess, or nature to kind of want to pair with someone and someone you have an attraction for, uh, regardless of what you might think of them. Like if you know that they're synthetic, but when there's like this convincing and they feel and act and speak like a true human or a creature, like you can't help yourself like in that situation. So I think that that's what it'll come to a head to. Um, probably around the finale or when she finally potentially activates or discovers her, her past and everything. Um, I think we'll see a moment where he might actually uh, flip sides. That's kind of my prediction. Um, so now we're, we're back on Vashti, uh, well, in space above Vashti, and we have a space battle, which I love space battles. Um, and I thought that the old bird of prey looked fantastic. Uh, it looked really good. Yeah. It even still had like the painted bird underneath the, the bottom of it, like from the, you know, the original series and everything. And they like, even they said like the targeting systems are so out of date that like, it's very slow when it's shooting its, uh, its phasers at the, uh, at Rios's ship. Um, so it's it's very well done. I thought the CGI was really great. Uh, I love the pilot hologram, which, of course, is again, it's Rios, but it's it's I'm going to say Spanish, but it could be Portuguese. I'm, I'm not exactly well, sure. I, I, I believe it's Spanish, but this one has a name. He called him Emmett. Yes. 
Yes, I caught that too. So I wondered, is this an aspect of Rios himself that he used to be a pilot or something, some part of him that he still kind of has a fondness for? That, that's what I'm thinking because, like, he uh, he has a really fun playfulness with this one because, like, he doesn't, like, this one he doesn't seem to really hate. Like, he does get, like, at one point, like, hey, where's the shooting, you know? Like, you're supposed to be shooting while I'm piloting. Um, but I like that they're, you know, that they're speaking in Spanish. Like, this is the first one that's not just speaking straight-up English. Um, and I like, it's like, he's longer hair, uh, kind of more tangly beard, tattoos on his arm, kind of like... Yeah, I'm just going to do this, you know, I'm just going to fly <laughs> here, do this shooting stuff. And uh, now this, this one looks like the one that I could see Rios like sitting back somewhere and they're both drinking until they're just completely wasted. Yeah, yeah. It, it just it was such a fun interplay. And uh, I, I really liked this version uh, of one of his holograms because like even finally, uh, you know, they managed to defeat the ship they had another ship show up they have no idea who it is um and when that once they take out the bird of prey um that other ship got hit and it's about to explode and the pilot wants to uh teleport on board and uh like picard just straight up says like yo let's tell teleport and then they're like oh and then rios is like yeah go do it and or while they're discussing it like the image just kind of goes not a good idea. Like, it's just kind of funny. And uh, but they they finally teleport the pilot on board and we have seven of nine uh, showing up. I wasn't expecting this to be where seven of nine was going to appear. Um, but I also liked it because like her one line is Picard, you owe me a ship. And then she passes out. And that's the end of the episode. And I thought like because we talked about how episode two kind of ended jarringly. This felt like how a cliffhanger type ending should be. Yes. And I, I love Seven of Nine. She's one of my favorite characters of Voyager. So I'm really glad to see Jerry Ryan back. Uh, and she doesn't seem to really have missed a beat uh, more so. And of course, in the next episode. But we're left wondering, like, why did she show up? Uh, why was she helping them out? And of course, we get those answers in the next episode. But uh, this one, I will say. Uh, I feel like except for that kind of the final moments of the episode uh, hurt a little bit of the pacing of the show. I know a lot of people kind of complained about episodes one through three being very slow, uh, not getting him off Earth quick enough and that it was just exposition, exposition, exposition. But this one felt even though we're in space and we're visiting different planets and we're seeing different characters, um, it even though this is a 44 minute episode, it feels really short because not a lot happens. Uh, it's just a lot of, again, it's flashbacks, but I, I love the flashbacks in this one. Um, but once we are, we're there, it's just kind of just slowly dragging out, but no, you know, nothing's really happening. We have him show up. He has his talk with Eleanor. They're off the, sh off the ship. Uh, off onto the ship and then they're we're at the end of the episode and it doesn't feel like other than him reconnecting with Elnor anything meaningful kind of really happened in this episode even the board cube stuff like this was very low key on the board cube and it wasn't until kind of that final two scenes on the cube that felt like anything of uh, import happened so I think for me on this one, uh, the episode's going to probably land at a, like a 3.5 out of 5. I still liked it. Like, I really liked the space battle. 
I did like Elnor and I, I did like the character moments. But like I said, it just it, it felt almost unimportant. It was the final kind of crew member to get onto the ship. And then our our secondary crew member being seven of nine, just showing up at the end. So that's that's how I felt about this one. Um, I don't know. I'd probably still just go ahead and give it a four because I don't feel like I've seen anything yet that I don't know would be below that. If you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't feel like they've done anything that I'm just like, I just hated that because I found myself like having to remind myself to take notes for this when I was even watching it through the second time, because I'm just, I'm just pulled into the story. Yeah. And I mean, like, it's not so much that they did anything that like I was really upset about. It just uh, I just felt like there was just very maybe it was just because it was a very kind of like straight plot that like I, I do agree. I know the first time I watched it, I watched it pretty much straight through and was like, you know, just very folk kind of focused on it and that I needed to watch it the second time to really get my notes down. But um, it just it, it felt a little too light on the plot elements a little bit. Like it was focusing more on the relationship with Picard and Elnor. than I, I guess really kind of advancing like the, the plot, ov- the overall plot more like, yeah. Like it yeah. didn't take into account that we've got like what, eight episodes or 10 episodes. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're, we've got six episodes left and like, granted that's still a few episodes to go. And um, but it just felt like it was it was just taking an, an, an unnecessary detour to show us another aspect of Picard that I liked exploring, but that overall the the overall plot was not fully advanced. Like, like I said, we got yeah. the stuff with Soji and Narek that I feel like is very important, but it came later in the episode rather than at the beginning. Like I, I know when I was watching it the second time, I thought that the scene with her um, watching Ramda's interview, uh, I thought was longer. And then I'm, I'm watching it and I'm like, uh, for the second time, I'm like, wow, this was like a two minute scene. This this felt like if you weren't really paying attention to the conversation that Ramda was having on her interview, uh, you could have blinked and the scene would have been over and you would have you know missed things that might come up to be crucial later on in the show. Um, but yeah, it just, it just felt like it didn't really advance anything plot wise for me. Yeah. All right. So that will do it for episode four. And we're going to go ahead and move on to episode five. This one was also directed by Jonathan Frakes. So we got two Frakes episodes back to back. Um, the name of this one is Stardust City Rag. And the, uh, premise of it is the Lost Serena crew Uh, begin an unpredictable and lively expedition to free cloud to search for Bruce Maddox. When they learn Maddox was, has found himself in a precarious situation, a familiar face offers her assistance. Well, we already know who that familiar face is. Um, and actually I didn't even know that that was the name of the ship when I was, I was about to say that I had no idea until we (laughs) saw it in there. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I'm like, okay, that's what that is. I was, I was like, okay, well, okay, well now we'll know to call it the La Serena. Um, rather than just Rios's ship every time. So this again, like I mentioned earlier, this one also opens up with a flashback, but it's 13 years ago. Um, we kind of see a crash, uh, crash ship and, um, we're going into the inside of it and we have a Starfleet. And I wrote this down cause I didn't catch it the first, uh, well, I only watched this once, but 
at the end of the episode, when it's kind of explained, if you weren't really paying attention or didn't understand or never watched Voyager, uh, who this Starfleet personnel was. But it's, yes. <laughs> uh, but it, it's Echeb from Voyager. Um, I, I knew he looked familiar, uh, especially the nose bridge was what really kind of drew my eye to it. But I couldn't pick up who who that character was. Um, and then uh, we see his eye being extracted by um, some uh, scientist. We don't really know. Yeah, I, I think the episode thing just called her Chop Doctor. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like they really did anything. Uh, it wasn't anyone we knew or were going to know. Um, but it was definitely, yeah, Chop Doc is what IMDb shows for. Um, but she's looking for his implants and, uh, it's a very gruesome scene. Like this is probably one of the most gruesome scenes that we've seen, not just in Picard, but in Star Trek in general. Um, I mean, like we, we talked about how, when they took off the implant of the one Borg, uh, in episode two, how it was, you know, kind of wet and gross a little bit, but it wasn't like gruesome like this one you see basically the whole eye extraction and the inside of the skull from the eye hole that it's like whoa guys uh kind of took it to 11 there um but this this whole thing was so upsetting for me watching this because i did i watched voyager i love Echeb, and when i realized it was him i was just so upset yeah after after the fact once i got to that once uh once they mentioned his name near the end of the episode i was like oh I retroactively felt bad. And probably if I had gotten a second rewatch in before recording, I, I probably would have felt more upset um, about about that happening. Um, well, when I'm when I was first watching that and like I said, and I realized who it was. Well, then the chop doc says that she's looking for his cortical nodes. So then I felt even worse <laughs> because each have gave seven of nine his cortical node in Voyager. That's right. That's right. And so seven of nine tries to rescue him. Um, and, and, uh, she, you know, takes out everybody that's, that's there. And, um, and this was why, like at the time this confused me cause she said my child and I was like, wait, what? And now realizing after the fact that it's each of us like, okay, that makes complete, complete sense now. Um, and we realize that this group, cause we, we, it kind of pans out and we see all of these different Borg, uh, parts. And so I, I wrote down Borg harvesters. Um, and we, we learn later on like why they were doing this. Uh, it's, but we, that's kind of where that, that scene, uh, ends. And now we see Stardust city on free cloud. Um, Bruce Maddox has arrived and he's, uh, talking with, uh, Jazel and, uh, he's telling her about how the Tal Shiar, have destroyed his lab and uh, she is not quite thrilled by this. And we don't, I, I don't quite understand the relationship he has with her. Um, especially I know she's kind of more of this black market type character, um, but she's dealing, seems like she deals more with Borg implants than anything synthetic that Maddox was doing. So yeah, I, he said that she had a loan or he had, a loan Oh, that's her, right. But other than that, because he won't be able to pay back that loan now because of the, the lab being destroyed. That that's what it is. Um, so she, but aside from that, I felt like, 
I don't know. He kind of had more of a, they looked like they knew each other a little better than just, I have a loan with you. You know, like I go to the bank, I have a loan with you, but I'm we're not like that friendly. Right. Right. Yeah. So that, I don't know that's if they were true. working together or if he was kind of maybe using some of the board parts. I don't, I don't know. You know, that could, that could very well be considering, um, with kind of later on in the episode uh, near the end, and he's talking about having sent Dodge to or uh, Soji uh, to the Borg cube. Uh, maybe he used some Borg technology in developing these synthetics. So that could that could be more of what's in line. Maybe the loan isn't necessarily money, but it was Borg parts. Um, so she drugs him at first. I thought was poisoned. Because it looked like he, he was dead, uh, but I, I crossed that out once we got later on the episode. So he's he's drugged. Um, so we get the the ready room uh, again, um, and he's looking at kind of an ad for Free Cloud uh, Picard, and um, Seven kind of interrupts him, and they uh, kind of talk about what why she showed up when she showed up, and we learn that she's part of the Fenris uh, Rangers. And so it's not necessarily that she showed up because of Picard being there, uh, but rather that uh, she was still trying to do her duty as a ranger by protecting uh, the people on Vashti and whatnot and going after that kind of gang lord. Um, and and it I just... don't know if, if you knew who the rangers were or if this was a new thing. Um, when I looked it up, it seemed to be a new thing, but it reminded me of the Maquis and how that group developed when the Federation left planets to Cardassia, that when all of this took place and, and the Federation just, you know, pulled out of helping Romulus or whatever, that these Rangers kind of came in and tried to fill that vacuum of keeping law and order. So I would say the Maquis was more of domestic terrorist group. Um, because of it was people that the uh, Cardassians um, uh, displaced by taking over worlds, and these people were fighting back against the the Cardassians. Whereas I, w- from what I gathered on the episode, and I would probably have a better um, understanding of it watching it a second time, uh, that the Fenris Rangers were kind of a secondary group that uh, developed to help with the Romulan evacu- evacuation. And they were based on the planet Fenris and that Fenris uh, ended up getting destroyed in the supernova. That's, that's kind of how I understood it. And so they saw that the, the failure of Starfleet and the Federation in helping people out and kind of upholding law and letting these people in this uh, sector kind of just fend for themselves, they formed and kind of changed their their message of just helping refugees to being, we're going to protect them, we're going to be kind of law and order. And, I mean, she does kind of straight up say we're vigilantes. So, like, they're not acting with uh, Federation backing or, or approval. So I would say, that, like, I've read some of, like, kind of the books and stuff, and, of course, those are probably not considered canon anymore um, because of the new shows and whatnot. Uh, but like this was never anything that was ever in them. Um, so I would say that this was something that was kind of developed for the show. And I, I, I kind of understand it, too. Like, I understand the Maquis even like it, it makes sense that you would have these groups who would see that the Federation were being lax and not uh, helping people out. So they took it, take it upon themselves to do what they feel the Federation has let them down on. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we kind of 
get them talking about their cause and uh, Picard kind of gets her to sit back down to um, discuss about the uh, the mission that they're on. Um, at this time, also, we have uh, Rafi looking something up and uh, looking up at this person, Gabriel uh, Wang. Um, or Wong, or however you want to pronounce the name, uh, and they kind of gossip about uh, Seven of Nine. Like she, uh, she knows who Seven of Nine is, but Rios is like, "Oh, this is like ninety nine or eleven or something." And, and and Rafi's like, "No, it's Seven of Nine. And he, so he kind of adds it on to, "Okay, it's the Fenris leader, Ranger leader, who was a former Borg, who is Seven of Nine, and." Um, it was kind of a little little fun moment there between Rios yeah. and Rafi. A little call out to Stranger Things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then um, we have Agnes kind of watching this home hollow with Maddox, and we kind of realize that they're a couple, which I, I guess kind of makes sense when I think back to the first episode. She did seem to kind of have this very strong connection this also ruins my theory that Q was behind everything, too. Um, but uh, we it's a cute little moment, although I, I kind of uh, I mean, I don't know the age difference, but it, he seems so much older than her that it seems like a little weird. But at the same time, they're scientists and they work together a lot. It, it kind of makes sense that they might develop a relationship. Um, uh, it kind of seemed more like a, a 30 year old versus a 40 year old sort of age difference to me where it did doesn't like seem like that much. I mean, right. it seems like more when it's like 10 versus 20. <laughs> right. Right. And, but and like, yeah, she's, it looks like she's in like in her thirties or something. And maybe he's in his late forties. And, but as far as like the whole relationship goes, I, I mean, I wasn't surprised, but I didn't, and I didn't hate it either. I was just like, Oh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I didn't hate it. it. uh I think it's because he's like, he's so gray compared to her that that's like why it seems like he's older than her. Um, but like it makes more sense of like one of the reasons of like her wanting to go on the ship and find him is because this is her significant other. And right. And, and I thought, why didn't she lead with that? Well, I think we find out kind of later on in the episode why she didn't lead with that. But right. Uh, but, but at this point, that's what I'm thinking. Correct. Correct. Uh, so this uh, this also is kind of uh, fun, too, is they finally arrive at Free Cloud and they get these hollow ads, which are just like pop up ads. And it's it's really funny. Them. And uh, yeah, I, I loved it, too. Like, I like that. Um, oh, uh, you know, Picard just kind of waves his one off. Um, but the one that's attacking Agnes is like this robot, like that keeps punching her. And like Rios is like, he just got to knock its head off. And um so she finally punches and they have like a nice little moment and everyone and even Rafi gets one for her kind of drugs and she kind of waves that one away. Uh, but Elnor is like, I don't get one. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think of that scene? I thought it was I, I I loved everything about it. A lot of funny stuff. I like the fact that it's like commenting on technology and pop up ads and also ads that are directed to you, you know, mm -hmm. like Facebook and Google kind of tracking what you look up and then sending you ads for things that you've looked at, how each ad was personalized to each person. Yes. Yes. And then I thought, well, poor Elnor probably didn't get one because he's been living on this planet <laughs> his whole life and he's only like 20 something. And there's no information about him 
for wherever that analytics is that pulls that up for them to give him one. Yeah. But then I thought, well, it could have just popped up one in general, but the gag is that he didn't get one at all. Right. And he's so disappointed too. It was, that was like the funny, funny point on the scene. Um, but I do have to say like, this is, they do kind of a character shift with him in this episode a little bit. Um, whereas like, he seems so kind of like serious and, and, uh, not dour, but you know, uh, it's kind of focused. Now we're seeing him childlike wonder, which it, it makes sense too, in a sense, uh, because like this is his real first time in 14 years. He's left a planet. He's going somewhere he's never been before. So he does have that childlike wonder, but it just seems it seems a little bit different than what we saw in the previous episode. But like I said, it it, it makes sense, too, at the same time. Yeah, because in the previous episode, he's in his element that he's been born and raised into. And also, as far as even Romulan culture, you know, with their way of absolute candor with the nuns, which is completely counter to, like, what we see with Narek and his sister and how everything's got to be secretive and you never actually, you know, say anything that's truthful. Right. Well, Elnor is, like, truthful to a fault. He's just very innocent and because he's never really been taught to lie. Right, right. And, and so, yeah, it's it's definitely like a fish out of water scenario. Um, so during um, the next couple of uh, of scenes here, we have them kind of getting ready to plan everything. Uh, they see that uh, Bejazel is kind of holding Maddox for ransom for the Tal Shiar and um, that Seven of Nine kind of explains that she's behind the Borg black market a little bit, uh, and she offers herself for trade for Maddox, of course, with some caveats to it. It's not like she really is going to just trade her life so that they can get Maddox and go off on their own way. Um, this is kind of like a Las Vegas in space, in a sense. Uh, it's <laughs> it's definitely got the gambling aspect, uh, the drinking and, and stuff, and... Uh, outrageous outfits you see the guy wearing angel wings yes and someone had a halo and uh and this was my next like little note was like fun costumes you know this is definitely a throwback to next generation with all the different holodeck scenes or uh just even ones where they're out of a normal scenario and i'm thinking kind of even if it's not it's an episode where they go um uh, I'm, I don't remember exactly where they go, but when they beam down, it's like they're in a like 1950s Las Vegas casino. And it's because of a like former NASA astronaut yes. who died there. But like they're the ones that are kind of in the weird costumes in the sense because they're in their Starfleet uniforms, whereas everyone else is dressed normal. It, it's there are so many different like scenarios from Next Generation or even like Enterprise and Voyager uh, even uh, the original I was series, DS Nine, when they go to the, um, is it Vix? Yeah, whenever they go to Vix, um, so it's it's definitely a nice little throwback. And Picard has his little eye patch and uh, does his very over the top uh, French accent. Um, <laughs> it, and it's funny that he he commits to it. Like that, that's yeah, the bit. Knows. Um, so they talk about like, you know, this is what you're going to have to do. Uh, we're, we're putting you in as these facers who are, I guess, basically intermediaries for, uh, clients to, uh, bargain on their, on their behalf. Um, they, uh, while Rios is talking to Mr. Vup, who is like, was it beta Antonari or something? Uh, 
lizard that can smell lies, uh, the last thing you ate and the last person you had sex with. And someone even makes a funny joke of or if they're the same person, it's going to be the same thing. Um, And we get a a quark reference uh, that I loved having quark referenced on Picard because he's my favorite character from DS9. Um, so it makes, and it makes perfect sense in this scenario too, that, uh, Quark's name would come up because Quark is definitely a person of ill repute. He's worked (laughs) in black markets and stuff. Uh, so, uh, also we kind of see that Elnor is a little slow on the uptake, uh, cause he's like, well, what's, what's my role going to be? And like, wait, we're, we're pretending. Cause apart again, like you said, the absolute candor thing, like he doesn't quite know how to lie. So this is a, a complete deception and he doesn't know how to really deceive someone. He's not that normal, typical Romulan. Um, so I, I did kind of like that. Um, now we get another bit of, um, Gabriel Huang or Wong. And, uh, and I was writing down this, this Rafi's reason for getting to free cloud, Um, and of course it is, this is why she was so determined. This is why she said yes to Picard. Um, so she visits her son and, um, or it happens to be her her son and she is visiting him. Uh, he's not happy to see her. He blames her for a lot of things about, uh, you know, why his dad left her and why he went with his dad and, um, that, you know, she was involved in this whole conspiracy thing. Um, and then I, I wrote this down. I know you did too. Uh, now this was Rafi that said the conclave of eight, right? No, it's Gabe was, you know, when he's venting to her about how, you know, you left us and you abandoned us and you were always like never there because of her drug habit. He was, he was kind of taunting her saying, yeah, tell me all about your conspiracy. Tell me about the conclave of eight. That's right. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if the conclave of eight is, the uh, people in Starfleet that fired her because, we you know, as we talked about in our previous reviews, like we don't understand, like with her just following Picard's orders, why she would have just been straight up fired. Um, or is this conclave of a part of the conspiracy thing that she's kind of gotten herself involved in? Um, is it this maybe secret thing with the Tau Shiar in the Federation? Like, is there more that Rafi ha- has uncovered that she hasn't filled us in yet? Um, yeah, I'm wondering if it's all along that lines. And just specifically because it says Conclave of Eight, I was wondering if maybe that's also tying, that's going to be like a tie into the board because they always have their you know, numbered designations and there's like enclaves and conclaves and whatever in the board cube. That, that could very well be. I didn't, I didn't even think about that. Um, but also we learn that there's a grandchild on the way and she meets Gabe's wife who is either Vulcan or Romulan. It's not really, um, yeah, they don't really say. I feel like she looks more Romulan because she has that classic bowl cut from the next generation. Right, right. And uh, but yeah, you know, it's kind of like a nice little moment because she that's probably part of the reason why she wanted to visit him. Uh, she knew that the grandchild was on the way uh, and she wanted to try to get herself back into their lives. And um, unfortunately, it doesn't kind of work out uh, for her. But um it's just 
it was an interesting scene that we get, we get more kind of explanation into Rafi and how her kind of descent into madness has impacted um, not just her, but her family. Cause like when we are first introduced to her, we just assume like that someone who's only just tortured herself. Like we didn't have any idea that she had any uh, extended family and or children. So it was a really different um, aspect uh, of the of her character that was seen. And again, this is what I got to give credit to for Picard doing what Discovery is not is it is showing us these things about these characters. It is giving us some reference, making them three dimensional, showing us that they're flawed and that they're they can't do all everything and be super awesome and and uh, beat everybody at everything that they they have their own problems and their own conflicts. And by understanding that, we understand the character more and we can appreciate those characters more. Right. And I would hold up and say, you know, if people want to make a comparison of an African-American actress and character, I'm going to pick Rafi every time over Michael Burnham. Yes. Rafi obviously has amazing skills with security and how to hack into things and is a very skilled, competent person. And she's also a deeply flawed person. And if you want me to pick between them, I'm going to pick her every time. Right. And I would agree. And like and and now and give Burnham a little bit of defense uh, slightly, because I know you like you said, you tapped out in season two. They kind of gave her more backstory and explained more of kind of a little bit tragic upbringing. But none of it was still enough for me to be like, okay, I understand her completely or I've seen that she's deeply flawed because she still acts with this air of superiority. Whereas Rafi doesn't like she might act like she is, but she, you know, we see, like you said, deeply flawed. Uh, She still has certain issues that are haunting her and she still doubts herself. Like she might be really good at the hacking stuff, but when she has when she's going to visit her son, she thinks that this is going to turn out great, that she can show him that she has changed her life that she wants to be involved with her grandchild and her son. And instead, immediately, as soon as he brings one point up, she falls apart and just is like, but this and this and the conspiracy and this and, and like, oh, I'm chasing it down and, and this and that. And like, she's immediately back to where he last saw her uh, and, and was upset with her. So it's like, it's not like she just is overcoming this with ease. Whereas Burnham, it seems like, oh yeah, it happened. I'm good. I'm super, I'm awesome. I can do anything. Right. Um, right. So we also have Agnes back on the, uh, La Serena. She's kind of freaking out because she's been given the job of, uh, teleporting everyone back up once the, the, uh, emitter, uh, is, uh, activated, and the EMH kind of activates because he's like, oh, your uh, your uh, blood pressure and, and heart rate and all that are have kind of gone up. What's your um, emergency medical situation? And she gets them to deactivate. Uh, but it's kind of fun because like this is, again, a fish out of water. She's never experienced this on Earth. We don't even know if she's ever left Earth. So she's like kind of just like freaking out, like, am I going to do this right? Am I going to be able to save everybody? Um, and you know, finally is learning to calm down. Um, we have Picard delivering seven of nine to Bejazel. Um, and this is when we really like learn that seven and Bejazel have a history because she called Bejazel calls her by her human name, Annika, um, which 
I, I can't remember because it's been a while since I've watched Voyager. Was that revealed in Voyager? Yes, it okay. was. I thought so, because um, it did seem familiar. It didn't seem like it was completely out of place. But I didn't quite fully understand the relationship other than that Bejazel betrayed them and is the reason why Ichab was uh, murdered. Um, as I understood it from, from the couple watch-throughs, the, the rangers were getting together, they were trying to help people, and Bejazel pretended to be one of them. I don't know if it was because she knew that Seven was part of the group and she was trying to go after her for her Borg parts, but she posed as somebody who was part of the group who wanted to help and I guess became a close friend of Seven, I, I assume in order to capture her somehow. Right. But because they became friends... Seven had mentioned Icheb to her, and that is how Bejazel knew about Icheb and decided, well, I can easily snatch him and set a trap for him. And then, of course, we see at the flashback at the beginning of the episode, he's being chopped up for parts. Right, right. Okay, then that makes so Seven feels deeply betrayed by this woman. And and that makes a lot of sense. Like, I never felt like her her uh, anger was unjustified. Um, and I probably would have picked up more on that on my second watch through, uh, which I still plan on doing a second watch through, but I just didn't happen to get it in time for recording. Um, so because like it's it's to the point where she's ready to just straight up kill Bejazel. But uh, Rios makes a good point to her like, hey, you're going to put a bounty on all of our heads because we are here right now. They're going to not leave Picard and, and Elnor alone. They're going to come after him. Um, so Rios convinces them to beam all back up aboard the ship. They've got Maddox. Um, and I, I did, uh, I did like this. I don't know if you picked up on this, but while they're having kind of a, a final moment on the ship, uh, seven and, and Picard, I, I, I like this conversation. Um, first off it was, you know, she asked, well, when you were, um, brought back from the collective, did you feel like you had regained your humanity? And he said, yes. And then she goes, all of it. And he says, no. And I, I liked that because it shows again, that inner conflict that Picard has had with himself ever since he was locutus and brought back. And it validates her feelings as well, since she, she was taken out of the collective in the data, uh, Delta quadrant. But when she, uh, takes the two phaser rifles and she's getting ready to beam back down or, well, she's going to beam onto a ship, quote unquote, but she's really beaming back down to the planet. Uh, a bit of the Voyager theme played. Did you catch that? I didn't catch that in the music. No. Yeah, it's it's not quite Voyager, but it's it's got the hints of the Voyager theme. And I, I really I really appreciated that because um, I think Voyager gets unnecessary hate from time to time. Um, yeah, I don't I don't understand all of that hate. I really liked Voyager. I when Voyager was like the first, like so DS9 was probably my real first exposure to Star Trek. I might have seen some next generation here or there. But when I would stay at my grandma's some nights uh, and I couldn't sleep, I'd turn on the TV and DS9 would be on late at night. But when Voyager was kind of in full run as a kid for me, like it was the one I knew on UPN, like what time it started and I would turn it on and watch it from time to time. Uh, so maybe that's why I appreciate it more. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I just, I don't understand some of the unnecessary hate for it. Um, but I, I loved it. And I, I again, like I love seven of nine as well. 
Um, but she beams actually back down the free cloud for revenge. Uh, they have a little bit of a standoff with Bejazel, like they're having a conversation a little bit back and forth and she just straight up disintegrates her. I yeah, was... and at that point, having been upset from watching what they did to Echab, I was like, go, seven, go. <laughs> like, I wasn't <laughs> upset with her uh, for doing it, but I was a little caught off guard that it was a straight-up disintegration. No, I felt like this is exactly what she would do. Like, she knew that the Jazel was stalling, and when she was ready, she was just like, a straight-up shooter. Yes, and... We're kind of left in the lurch knowing what the final fate of Seven of Nine is in this episode because she's prepared as soon as the second security detail comes in. Um, that's kind of the last we see of her, uh, for the episode at least. So hopefully we'll... I think, I think she gets out. Well, I think so too because they kind of make it a point that she uh, gives Picard, like, I guess it's a, a Finry Rangers uh, calling card type thing. Um, so I, I feel like she will maybe not be back for next couple episodes, but she'll probably be back for the finale. Um, that's my assumption. Like I, I would assume that she, whatever happens, she'll be bringing other Fenris Rangers into it. Um, but we have Maddox and Picard finally meeting on the ship. Uh, and he, like you and I called it, the, the mom is an AI implant. Yes. And I was like, okay perfect because it makes perfect sense that it's just something it's a program in there to kind of keep uh dodge or soji calm uh when going through either activation or uh trying to make sure they don't activate so i i, I really appreciated that they uh address that but as they're talking and i i picked up on this and i don't know if you did um but agnes kind of is while she's overhearing this she kind of has like a moment um, she's just kind of like looking and like, it's, it's brief, but I figured at that time, like they're showing this for a reason. Um, she kind of, I, like, have, I have a lot of notes on this scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, 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 uh, we'll get through the scene cause it's all kind of, uh, kind of quick. And then we'll, we'll go into, into real in, in depth. Um, but, uh, Picard has, or, uh, Maddox has mentioned that like he, he sent, um, Dodge to earth and Soji to the the Borg cube to find the truth about the ban and that someone is hiding something. Uh, we learn that the Borg cube is in Romulan space um, and that uh, that they think that it is, you know, the Romulans and the Federation uh, that are involved. Uh, but during this um, final scene, um, there's something not right with with Agnes and Maddox. Um, she's kind of tearing up a little bit as he's talking to her. Cause he's so happy to see her. Um, and then she, uh, ends up deactivating the stuff on the, on the med, med bay table and the EMH actually activates and he's like, Hey, Hey, he's going to die. This is organ failure. And she deactivates it. And Maddox is dead. And that's right where the episode ends. So, why don't you go ahead and go into your thoughts on this scene? <laughs> okay, I, I just had so many thoughts with this scene. Um, I definitely picked up that Dr. Girardi, she's overhearing Picard and Maddox's conversation, that she definitely is reacting to it, like she knows something mm-hmm. or she's remembering something. There's definite reactions to their conversation. Um, I'm trying to decide where I want to go next. <laughs> um, when when they're talking to each other, when Maddox is talking to Agnes, and he's saying that he did it and Soong did it, 
and that her contribution was so important as well. I don't know if it's if you thought this or not, but my first thought when I'm watching that is I'm wondering if because Soji and Dodge are are organic synthetics, if technically Agnes is their mom who donated the eggs to create them. I I was absolutely thinking that. Um, but there there's one little kind of hiccup to, to this that I'm, I, it's just coming to my mind right now is um, she would have had to have that foreknowledge when Picard came to her in the first episode that because like, well, now, I, don't, I don't know that she necessarily gave birth to them, but no. if they like took the eggs and froze them and he just took them. That's true, because like, you know, the whole thing, like the conversation that he has with her about creating a, an organic synthetic and she's like, nah, it's virtually impossible uh i would feel like again if he did this in secret and she didn't know then that would make more sense like i mean not that she would have donated her eggs and not known about it but that uh that he succeeded you know that uh and that is from her egg that they were derived but i i would think it's it's a very valid point to point out yeah and i would think if maybe even if she did have some knowledge of what they were trying to do or what was going on, then that just gives us another angle to her of showing, no, she actually can lie. Yes. Yes. Okay. My only, my other issue with this whole scene, and it's, I don't know, maybe you can shed some light or convince me when the EMH activates, when we first see him, when, when, um, Dr. Girardi's having that panic attack at the transporter, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, the EMH is regularly monitoring everybody's, you know, medical stats automatically turns on because she's having a medical crisis and she's able to say, okay, go ahead and deactivate the EMH. Perfect. So when we get to this scene, when he automatically activates some, I just feel like her just being able to say deactivate the EMH was far too easy for the EMH to turn off in that situation. Mm-hmm. When you're in the medical bay, it has logic. You know, obviously this is when we're going into fantasy land here, but right. the EMH has all of this highly sophisticated logic in it about of, of a doctor, obviously, and how the doctor can even overrule the captain in a ship you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm like, for her to just be able to say, no, turn it off, far, far too simple for me. I'm thinking she should have had to have unplugged something or gone into the computer or something because I feel like as the doctor and the only doctor, again, this is Rios's ship. Right. He's the only person on the ship. So the, the EMH knows that there's no actual physical human doctor on the ship. It's just him that he should have been able to not shut off and have been able to counteract what she was doing and treat Maddox. So my, my thinking, cause this is something that's not necessarily shown in the episode, but I'm thinking, um, cause she had that previous experience with her, with her blood pressure and everything rising and it automatically activated, uh, and that she was, easily able to deactivate it that she would know, okay, well, I'm going to have to kill Maddox at some point here. I need to know how to make sure that this isn't going or that I'm going to be able to easily deactivate it uh, as soon as it starts when I could do whatever I need to do. Of course, she didn't necessarily know that Maddox was in such terrible condition that it would be a little bit easier for her. But she is over in that corner uh, while Picard is talking to him. Uh doing something now it's not necessarily working at a terminal or anything like that 
Um, but I'm wondering if, like you said, maybe she went into the computer, maybe put in an override command to when she says deactivate, it is to stay deactivated. Uh, I don't know. I feel like they would. I mean, even if she obviously she was planning that she had to kill him, that they could have given us a little scene where she's suspiciously tinkering with something. I, I don't know. It's just that to me right there is just a hiccup of like, I, just, I don't buy that piece of it. But we also have to remember that this isn't a an actual Federation class starship, um, that this is a, a kind of low end that it may once the once someone says deactivate, it means that um, medical care is no longer uh, required or needed because it's not like the EMH from Voyager, where, it, of course, it you know, he became basically sentient um, that it, it is since a crew member of a non Starfleet uh, class via, uh, ship can actually override its commands. And if they say no, then it means it's got to stay turned off. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to kind of come up with a little bit of an excuse, <laughs> but I, I'm just wondering if uh, because the, the other problem, I mean, not like rioting or anything like that, but the other problem with this scene that's going to be have to be addressed in the next episode is um, how how could he have died? You know, they had him in the yeah. med bay. She was there. You have the EMH. Everything was working fine. They'll have to know that somebody uh, killed Maddox. And I'm wondering if she's going to try to plan it on the EMH. Um, to, I, I to, don't know. I, maybe they'll explain it next episode. Yeah. I mean, they, they have to address it. And was like, I, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Cause I feel like even if, if your ship is uh, what I want to say, like fancy enough to have these emergency hologram pro programs mm -hmm. that, within even a basic one the logic would be there that it's that he can still see that this guy is dying and like i need to help right right well like like i said i i think it will have to be addressed within the the opening minutes i would think of of the episode uh for next week it, or well yeah. it'll be technically this week but um i there was one other thing too and this was something i think you brought up in in the previous review episodes like because she says if you had seen what i've seen uh, you you would understand what I'm doing. So I think you were right saying that. Oh, uh, mind melded with her because yeah, that was that was the last thing I wrote down is what did Commodore O show her right. via mind meld? Because I mean she's like we we see she's not doing this because she wants to do it. She is torn up, killing this person that she loves. Uh, I mean she is in tears. She doesn't want to necessarily do it. But whatever O showed her and we, we we called it, we said that there was a very important reason why they didn't show this conversation between O and, and Girardi and why she tried so hard to get herself on the ship. Um, it There is something at bigger play here that we don't know and that this is. This is going to be disastrous. This is going to have uh, ramifications when we get to the end of, of the season. Now, um, so that's basically... I, do you have any more uh, notes or things you want to talk about with that scene? Um, not with that scene. Okay. Um, so what's going to be really interesting now is um, the next episode, it looks like, is going to happen on the board cube. 
uh, that they're going to get there. And of course, it looks like Soji's going to be going like the, the, the next because we this was one note I did have. We had no Borg cube in this in this episode. Yeah. Um, so I think so we're that, probably going to stay there a long time next time. Right. And I think that the next episode is going to be predominantly focused on Soji and her journey and that seed that Narek planted in her um, about the self-doubt and, and her investigation and what's going on. Um, so it's going to be really interesting because we'll still have four more episodes after next week. Like, I don't want it to ramp up too much. Uh, I know I said episode episode four felt like it kind of didn't contribute anything to the uh, to the overall arc. This one felt like it did it a lot, like that there was a lot more. We were learning more about why Maddox was doing this or why he created uh, Dodge and Soji and why he sent them to Earth into the Borg cube. Um, what Agnes's purpose is on the ship, uh, why, you know, kind of more why focused on what what is the importance of this Borg cube because it seems to have a play in in the uh, reason that there was the thing on Mars and and possibly a connection to the Romulans why the Romulans and the Federation would be necessarily working together to prevent any other type of synthetic being uh, from being made so I, I is starting to kind of kick it in the fourth gear and it's going to be really interesting to see how these last uh, five episodes are going to uh, answer all of our questions and uh, reveal what's going on and set up season two. <laughs> yes. And I'm, ex- I mean, I'm really, I've been really enjoying this. I know others haven't, uh, I, I haven't listened to any reviews about these last two episodes that we just covered, but I, I, uh, I still don't, this feels so much like Star Trek versus discovery did. And, I mean, it's it's doing the appropriate callbacks, the appropriate uh, references. It's not changed anything canon wise. Uh, Picard feels like Picard. It just I don't understand a lot of this kind of backlash other than, you know, people have their preconceived notions. And uh, you and I were were talking about this uh, before. I think the even the last episode aired, someone had kind of done a thumbnail and they were like saying, oh, I'm the hip, cool guy, and oh, I'm the diverse black woman, and then Picard <laughs> being over to the side going, hey, hey, I'm over here. I've not felt like Picard has ever gotten the shaft in any of these episodes. I mean, I know we've talked about it being focusing on some of the other characters and giving us backstory for, for our new characters, um, but it's never felt like he's really taking the backseat to his show. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so for this episode, this one, uh, definitely a 4.5 out of five for me. I really liked, uh, I know we didn't talk about all of the stuff that they saw on free cloud, but I really liked the aesthetic and I liked all the fun things that they did with it. Uh, I felt like the plot really advanced the overall arc. Um, I hate that it ruined my Q theory, but (laughs) I'll take it. You know, I'm still, still enjoying it. Uh, it was a it was a long shot anyways. But like I said, at least, you know, the, we, we got to meet Maddox. We got to understand a little bit more about why he did this. And it was to and like you said, back to the measure of a man and everything like he's now felt like he's on the level of soon and, and creating these lives. Um, but one one thing I'm still kind of uh, on a question about is how are there more? 
you know, we, we, we know that there's this like nest or whatever of other synthetics. So that means like that there has to be at least a, a bigger number of, of synthetics out there that we don't know. And I'm assuming that that's where we'll get to the finale, but, uh, where or how or when these other group of synthetics were created, because it seems primarily so focused on Dodge and Soji that you would almost think that these were the only two in existence. Yeah, I'm wondering if he has them like, like those two he activated and spent time with, but the other ones were all just sort of like in stasis or something somewhere. Kind of like a space seed scenario where like, yeah. you know, um, uh, Khan and his um, eugenics uh, warriors were kind of just out there in space and, and kind of uh, cryostasis. Yeah, that would make sense. So uh, what are your final thoughts on this episode? Um, two random comments. Yeah. Um, the with the mention of Quark and the Breen. The Breen are always something in Star Trek. I'm like, show me more of the Breen. Stop just referencing them. I actually want to, like, see the characters or something, like, walking around. Well, we did we did in DS9. I mean, yeah, the, but I'm, I want more. That's I, 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 I agree. <laughs> you know, more is always then, better. Well, my other just random comment was Jerry Ryan's outfit. Mm-hmm. Just I loved it. I love her sweater. I love her pants. I love the jacket. I like what they did with their hair and the, having the eyepiece that looks similar, but not quite as shiny. Yeah. Yeah. And I even love, uh, I love that overall, even even her hand, like the the uh, implants on her hands still like looked like they're kind of a little bit more. Uh, worn down from age and you know the fact that she's no longer Borg and it's being upkept uh, and yeah it's it's not the the cat suit from Voyager uh, as they <laughs> like to call it but yeah I thought she looked I mean she looked appropriate and um, I really loved her showing up these two episodes and I mean this one being more focused on her and she takes more of the showcase in this one uh, I, I just love that they brought her back I love that we kind of get uh, a little bit more of a, of a Voyager kind of crossover with our characters from TNG. Even though we had a few of those episodes in Voyager, they were either, you know, communication episodes or holodeck episodes or just even kind of like dream episodes or, or a, a future episode Well, when they're like, oh, we finally came back from the Delta Quadrant. But we never kind of had her interact with legacy characters from other shows. Like I would even love if Cisco all of a sudden randomly showed up in Picard and like, cause you know that, that would even actually, this would be even more appropriate to have Cisco kind of show up. Cause it's a like when we're dealing with a Borg thing that, mm-hmm. well, of course I know why Cisco can't show up now. I, I remember it. Um, but you know, maybe even Jake or, or something or, or have, uh, Esri Dax, uh, show up, you know, I would love well, to see kind of, I would love to see Barkley. Oh yes, absolutely. How could yes. you not enjoy a Barkley, uh, uh, cameo in there somewhere? Um, that would be amazing. So yeah, I would love to see kind of like, I, I don't need it to be, you know, that they need to be on there for every episode, but just kind of more acknowledgement of, these other characters in the world. And I mean, they did that plenty of times with next generation and, uh, and DS nine, um, Voyager kind of got the, got the shaft a little bit only because of course they're in the Delta quadrant because, right. you know, you, you can't quite do that, but sorry, I went on a little rant there. 
<laughs> no, that's fine. Those were just my two, like, just, like, random comments that I had written aside. And um, as far as the episode overall, I'd probably go ahead and give it a 4.52 with the caveat that if they don't explain to me how, the EMH thing, I'm probably going to drop it down to a 4. <laughs> well, I, I have a feeling they, they will address it. Because so far, I mean, I think everything that we've been like, they need to address this, they need to explain this they've pretty much done within either the next episode or the next two episodes. Um, so I, I think it's very much going in a way like in the opposite of how lost was when it was on air, like lost set up so many questions and although they answered a few of them, there were so many more that they didn't address. And I'm not saying that they have to address every uh, question we have, um, but they need to address at least the big ones. And I would agree that the EMH would be a big one. Uh, they might show us that she did some tinkering in the, in the next episode, just, just as a, like maybe they're covering, you know, they discover the body and, uh, it focuses on her and then it flashes to her tinkering at some command board or something like that. And they show that she deactivated it. So, um, all right. Well, I think that's going to do it for the Star Trek reviews. This, I think, will turn out to be actually a fairly long episode because even though we only did two episodes, we still <laughs> went really long. Uh, but that's just because we love Star Trek so much. So I, I want to thank you for joining me again, and we'll s- see you on the next episode. And uh, guys, we'll be playing you the trailer for The Lighthouse here as we'll transition over into the second half of this episode. So. All thank right, you for Leslie. having me. You, well, thank you again for coming on. It's it's always a great uh, conversation. Tell me, what's a timberman want with being a wiki? Just looking to earn a living, just like any man. Starting new. On the run. Secrets, are you? No, sir. Watch this billion beans. guys now i am joined by my normal co-host pat and how's it going pat i mean define normal (laughs) well normal enough i mean we've had a bit of an on off thing here but like i recorded the valentine's day one and uh you know just uh, started doing all this star trek stuff and well you know if you would be cool and actually watch star trek we would involve you in on this once again i'm gonna need you to find cool cool only the cool kids (laughs) 
watch Star Trek. I mean, you could have been a part of the full first whatever. I think it was about an hour long or maybe even longer uh, discussion that we had on two episodes of Star Trek. And if you get caught up on Clone Wars, when we start covering Clone Wars, uh, you probably should have stopped at two episodes of Star Trek. <laughs> no, no, there's never enough episodes of Star Trek. All right. Well, uh, I'm glad that we can talk about this movie. I know you were the one that was more pushing to watch this movie than anyone I knew. I, I was like, yeah, I'll watch it whenever I get a chance to watch it. But you were like, we got to go see the lighthouse. We got to go see the lighthouse. We got to go see the lighthouse. Of course, we never did. We never did. And it was I mean, it was a limited release. So we would have had to go to Esquire. And you were still kind of in New York at the time, too. Yeah, I, I think I had more availability to see it, but I still never went and saw it. Right. And uh, so um, now it's, you know, directed by uh I'm going to make sure I get his name right. I want to say Richard, but I know it's not Richard. Robert Eggers, who did The Witch, which I've seen and you haven't seen, right? Correct. Okay. And I really like The Witch. Uh, I know people had issues with The Witch being kind of slow, um, maybe light on some of the horror elements, but it, it was just more of a drama piece in the sense. And I... I I agree and I disagree at the same time. I think the horror is is very kind of slow building. And I would say Lighthouse is very much kind of in that vein, although I think it maybe works in a faster pace. It's a very slow burn. Yes, it is very much a slow burn. And 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 The Witch is like that, too. And I want to compare him right now to another filmmaker who is hit or miss for me. But with uh, Eggers, it's been two um, two hits but with Ari Aster, who is very much kind of a similar and they both do movies for A24, which kind of are doing these higher end horror type films. I wasn't a fan of Hereditary. I know you weren't the biggest fan of Hereditary either. No, um, I'm, I do need to rewatch it and see maybe if I feel differently about it. But I think we both uh, liked Midsummer a lot more. I did. Yeah, it was a much better structured movie. Yeah, and it, and it dealt with uh, better themes. I think like the overall themes of, of loss and and uh, and closure and and all the things that Danny in that movie is going through were better than the mother in Hereditary. Like at least in Midsummer, there was a character I could like and identify with or or feel some empathy for. Whereas we were hereditary, I didn't like anybody except maybe the husband. And even he was a little bit of a piece of shit. No, so yeah. And at least there was some humor in uh in Midsummer yes, as well. Yes. It wasn't a one note. Correct. And so um I would say though with Robert Eggers, he has done um something a little bit better than Ari Aster has, where he's he's established himself being this very um, like we said, like slow burn uh, filmmaker who knows how to um, weave these characters together in a, in a sense of like they're not necessarily likable characters either, but there are parts of them that you can understand or identify with. And there's a humor in it as well. There's less humor in The Witch than in Lighthouse, but uh, they're there's their character, very character driven and not that like Ari Aster's movies aren't character driven, but I think his, his plots are a lot better than Ari Aster's. Um, so the premise for the lighthouse is two lighthouse keepers try to maintain their sanity whilst living on a remote and mysterious new England Island in the 1890s. Um, one of the things I like the most about this and it's in the trailer is the opening, um, scene with them at the dock is like almost like they're, 
standing there for a picture. Mm-hmm. Like you would expect to kind of find that in a museum or something. Um, and you thought I missed this, but I did catch it. Uh, uh, Willem Dafoe putting in his pipe upside down. Oh, yeah. Now, whether that is intentional or a mistake, I'm not so sure. I think it was to show that he at, at the very beginning of the movie, he's already not all there. Yeah, he's he's definitely quirky, um, especially his goddamn farts. Oh. Um, <laughs> you know, he whereas I, I uh, with Ephraim, who is played by Robert Pattinson, um, he seems to be more serious and like, I want to do this work. I need to make a living. And Thomas, played by Willem Dafoe, is more like, yeah, I'm near the end of my life. I'm going to have some fun with it or something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the kind of movie like I don't really want to spoil this movie and I don't really want to go into spoilers on this one. But, uh, you know, everything kind of starts off normal. Uh, I, I the. The way it's filmed, I think, is probably the most uh, interesting aspect of this movie, because you and I both commented on it while we were watching it, that um, it feels and looks like it was like shot in like maybe the 1930s or 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got the black and white. It's got the old um, aspect. ratio. Uh, yeah, the old aspect ratio. Uh, the sets look like something you would see from the old uh, Universal Monster movies like they they have a sense of realism to them, and uh, the it's just it's very beautifully shot, but also very low key. I will say that the aspect ratio of it probably looked a lot better in theaters versus on a fifty five inch TV. Right. Um, well, and I, but but I still enjoy that they did it. Well, and like in one thing, in in theaters now it would have been interesting to see what they would have done. But you have uh, the curtains that can kind of come in and cover up the the black bars on the side. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they did that on any screenings for that. I would assume if it like if it had played at Greendale, um, where I used to work, we would have done that. Mm-hmm. We would have we would have fixed it so that those wouldn't have been distracting. Yeah, uh, but get some curtains yeah. over your TV. Yeah, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, not not on that stand. Um, but uh, yeah, it didn't it didn't bother me, uh, especially more as the movie went on. Like you, you're, you, you kind of get about it. right. And you get so drawn into this movie. And um, but, you know, everything kind of seems normal, uh, just kind of day to day stuff like he finds and we don't know whether or not like because the movie leaves you with a lot of questions it doesn't really it's not set out to answer anything Mm -hmm. for you and the witch is very similar like it presents the thing and you are the person who determines what it means and i would say again going back to like ari aster a little bit he does a a little bit the same although he's a little more straightforward especially in midsummer versus Mm -hmm. hereditary um and i kind of like this aspect about robert eggers that it's it is very much a film that I think two different people could sit there and watch it and have completely two different perspectives on, on what they watched. Um, for me, this definitely came across as a Lovecraftian film. And I know you're not too familiar with Lovecraft, but I don't know what, what did you kind of come off with this film thinking about it? I think that everything that plays out in this movie is foreshadowed at the very beginning. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, you kn- you already know what's going to happen, but you you don't at the same time. Well, there's even, <laughs> uh, like, again, there's even specific lines of dialogue, and that's why I don't want to really go into spoilers or anything on this, that 
Uh, I think we, as we were watching it, uh, Willem Dafoe's character says one particular line. And I'm like, I bet that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you come out and you're like, yeah, that, that happened. Um, my brother had an interesting take. He hasn't watched it yet, but he watched the trailer last night. And, um, and this is neither a spoiler or an identifier of what the film is actually about, but he had his own take on, okay, I'm, I'm expecting Robert Patterson to have been dead. And, uh, Willem Dafoe is someone who lost his mind. And if you, I, I can see how he would get that take from it. Um, and it's really interesting that this, like I said, this film could have so many different variations of people's interpretations mm-hmm. from it. Um, but we do see that Thomas is working Ephraim really hard, uh, making him do all the difficult tasks, like entering the chamber pots, um, moving uh, the grain, the the grain or whatever that they had to put in the the water for the drinking water. Yeah. Um, and uh, the oil, the oil, the the shingles. Well, the one thing, of course, that he does with the oil is he doesn't tell him to do the small can. So he carries up that big giant can all the way up to the top of the steps. And he tells him, uh, Thomas tells him, what do you want to do? Blow up the lighthouse. And then he's like, take that shit back downstairs. (laughs) And you're like, Oh God, Oh, that would hurt. Oh, that was probably so heavy too. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I can't imagine that being, and I mean, you could see him physically struggling with it, getting it up each step. And I would say it probably took him like two hours to get it up there too. Easily. And so now you got to take it all the way back down. Um, now Thomas is the only one that's allowed up into the light of the lighthouse. And we don't really know why. Um, I mean, he kind of tells him, like, he's he's the keeper. He's the only one allowed up there. But we don't know why he wants to be up there so much. Mm-hmm. And um, this is where kind of Ephraim starts peeling a little bit in sanity. Like, he, he's just constantly wondering what's up there, what's up there. And that kind of becomes his central mission is to find out what's up there in the light. Yeah, he wants to know that and he wants to know what he's writing in that book. Exactly. Yes, yes. He uh Thomas is keeping a log the entire time and he locks it away every night. Now, I thought until of course it's revealed at the end what's in that book. I thought he was just writing like a story or something. I didn't really kind of catch I I might have missed it really quick, but it uh I didn't realize that he was actually like detailing the, the day and uh, and stuff like that about what they did and how good of a work they did. Mm-hmm. And so I I like the kind of the idea that it was more of a story because of considering how he has his little she sea shanties and tells his own little yarns about him being on the sea and, and facing these storms and stuff like that. Um, I thought it would have been a little bit more interesting had it actually turned out to be like some novel he was writing. And I thought that that's why Ephraim was so... Um, intent on seeing what it was, but yeah, that's again, people have, could have different takes from it. Um, now also during this time, he has weird dreams. He sees a mermaid because he had that little mermaid thing that was in his bed. Um, and that's kind of some of the Lovecraftian aspects that I, I really, uh, I take away from this is, is especially in the latter half of the film, uh, when it starts getting really weird and you're seeing a lot of sea creature stuff, um, it, that's where it really feels like it. And, um, and we're, we're getting that he doesn't drink, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, Thomas always drinks He's always every night. Yes. <laughs> he is uh, pretty much a permanent drunk and they don't really like, 
Ephraim is not really wanting to talk. He's just there to do the job. And Thomas kind of slowly whittles him away with some charm. And um, it does get to finally a point that he actually starts drinking. I think that that was the final moment for like Ephraim to just snap. It's it's because it all seems to go downhill there. Yeah, all sanity was lost at that point. <laughs> so um, we also have this thing with the seagull, and I didn't notice this, but I'm looking at the Wikipedia. Uh, the seagull had one eye. Did you did you catch that? I thought it was closed. Yeah, I didn't even notice it. Um, but this kind of goes to something later on that the former wiki, which was like basically a second mate, was uh, had one eye and. Um, he, Thomas tells Ephraim that, you know, that he believes that these seagulls are um, the reincarnated souls of lost sailors and that to kill one would be bad luck. And at one point, of course, Ephraim kills, kills it. And, uh, it's almost and it's like he told him not to. Yeah, right. And uh, and that's when everything really starts, because that's when you get like kind of the monsoon type uh, weather. Uh, they lose their provisions. That was another scene that was just so well shot was the storm. Oh, the storm is fantastic. And and also kind of what's also interesting. I, I just think of this now is um, the the house that they're in, basically, mm-hmm. like what they live in, where they eat. As they're slowly losing their minds, the house gets more and more disheveled until when you get to the end and it's just completely wrecked. Yeah, and they didn't even try after the storm. Right. Well, it's 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 a perfect reflection of their mental states, and I, I didn't really like think about that until just now. Um, we would get numerous like funny scenes too. Like once they're just straight up drinking and they're doing their little dance and jig, and then they have their little weird slow dance at one point, um, and then it really kind of falls apart for them once Ephraim tells his secret. And I'm not going to go into what that secret is, but even Thomas is like, shouldn't have spilled your beans. Like you spilled your beans. Now this is not, this is not good. And, uh, we get all these weird dream sequences and it's really just, it's hard to kind of peg this film. Uh, it, it goes all different places. And, uh, it's it's just really difficult that to kind of even try to come up with a concise thought to even talk about these things. But I I, I really liked it. I really did. I, I you and I both aren't necessarily fans of Robert Pattinson. I know we are both kind of a little cautiously optimistic how he's going to do as Batman and Matt Reeves Batman trilogy. Um, the only thing I know you and I both had seen him in was Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Um, and that's. 2004 so 16 years ago in a minor role you know and it was pre-twilight and so we you know we're not twilight fans haven't seen the movies haven't read the books uh but we know kind of the the stigma that follows that film for both Kristen stewart and him Mm -hmm. and although i think Kristen stewart's done a fairly good job of reclaiming her career a little bit i mean i'm not too familiar with a lot of her films post either um but Robert Pattinson was one that he's not been much of anything that I've like been like, yes, I want to watch that movie. So I haven't actively sought any of his uh, pieces out and this being the kind of the first one. And I will say based on his performance in this, he, he is definitely a very talented actor. And I think with Matt Reeves behind that project that it will, um, it will be, Hopefully very good. Uh, I, I was very impressed with his performance. Yeah, I think overall it was 
the acting of the movie was fantastic. Yes. You, you always expect the best from Willem Dafoe, even when he's playing like minor roles. Right. Uh, yes. And, and Willem Dafoe does like, if I know people were like wanting him to be cast as the Joker long before Joaquin Phoenix and everything, if they had never cast Joaquin Phoenix or if they're, I don't know what they're going to do with this Batman trilogy with Matt Reeves. Uh, but if they want to look at someone who could be a good Joker, you look at Willem Dafoe in this film and he's so good at playing doublespeak. Like he is at one point acting as a friend and then as an, uh, and the next very like next second, he is an enemy. And, uh, he's constantly making Ephraim question himself. Like I think at one point when they're waiting for the, the ferry to pick Ephraim up, uh, the next scene is like, you think it's only been a couple of seconds and he's out there standing and then he gets him and pulls him back into the house and he goes, well, what do you mean? It was yesterday. We waited for the ferry a week ago and we don't, we don't even know if that's true or not. Yeah. And we don't know if that's just, uh, Thomas messing with him. Um, but even I think Thomas honestly doesn't know, as we heard in the trailer, he even says like, how long have we been here? Has it been five weeks, two days? Help me to recollect. And it, it, it is this you have no idea the passage of time. Um, and I will also say with Willem Dafoe's performance in this, he has some of the best monologues in this film, whether or not you can understand like the meaning of what he's saying. They're beautifully delivered and, and just impeccable. Yeah. Another thing that really gets you immersed in it is they use a lot of like older language. And yes. A few words that I had never really understood and had to Google while we were watching. <laughs> um, but it was it was something that really kind of made the uh, it made the scenes a lot better. Yes. And that's again, it goes to Eggers, because when he did uh, The Witch, like it again, it's in old English. It's uh it is very much fitting the time period that that is set in. And again, with this one, the language that they're using is perfect for the time. It is also sea jargon. It's from sailors and everything. Uh, even like the kind of the the uh, mythology around like killing the seagull is kind of like with the albatross. And if you had an al a dead albatross, that was a bad omen. And this is definitely a film focused on kind of sea mythology to talk about uh, Neptune a little bit and, um, it, it, mermaids and, mm -hmm. and sirens. And, uh, it, it's, it definitely is encompassing every aspect about that way of life and the mythology surrounding it that I think adds that authenticity to what you're watching on the screen. You feel like these are two guys in real life acting this way. Um, now one thing and, and this will be more of an inside joke for you and I, uh, knowing particular things that you and I follow. But I, I didn't really catch this because I thought as they're getting desperate when they run out of booze later on in the film, I thought they were mixing oil and honey. No, it's turpentine and honey. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so as you and I, I... I would not drink that. I would not recommend doing that. And also, knowing what turpentine can do to a mind now, uh, after learning uh, a little bit about some people um, possibly ingesting that, not it makes, it makes recommended, it makes sense then why their descent is hastened, why they really start losing their minds uh, after that point. Like, they're so desperate for that alcohol that they're doing whatever they can to get their get 
some type of fix. Yeah. Get their fix essentially. Um, so whether or not that was meant to be turpentine or not, uh, that's kind of what I'm seeing on, on the, uh, the Wikipedia. So that's, uh, kind of up in the air as whether or not that's true or not. Uh, but that's very interesting and interesting take on it. So, this film definitely ends on a what the hell type of moment. Um, I I don't know what to make of it and I don't know what to say. I, I do have kind of a theory about like what the island and the lighthouse kind of represent. Um, but I really I really don't want to spoil anything. I don't want to do a spoiler section on this or anything. So. Uh, Go out and watch it. <laughs> yes, uh, and I have to recommend it. Like this was one I was apprehensive to buy, and I don't know why. Because like I, I think it was a, uh, it was because it was getting so much high praise that I was afraid that it was going to be one of those films that like Hereditary let you down. Yeah, I was, I was going to go into it and I was going to be like, this was a piece of shit. Like, and even like I was a little bit worried about that with The Witch to a degree. Although The Witch had more, I think, dissent from people who didn't find it to be anywhere near a horror film. Um, and this kind of got the vice versa where everyone, this is definitely a psychological thriller. It's horror. Uh, it's all about uh, your mental state and the kind of wearing on your, on your mind of isolation and being stuck with the same person for weeks on end. I mean, I don't miss And I almost would have, like I'd almost prefer just to be there by myself, but who knows? I might go more crazy if I'm by myself that long. Um, Especially without technology. Oh God, no! I have to have my technology there. <laughs> that's that's the that's the only thing. I gotta I gotta be able to have my video games and my movies. So, um, <laughs> so for me, this one is definitely a must see. I, I got it on a on a voodoo sale. I it's currently. I mean, it's not streaming for free on any service yet that I know of. Um, you can rent it on Amazon. You can rent it on Vudu. Um, just it's definitely worth. It. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm hesitating giving it a perfect score. I really want to, but I, I'm feeling like that might be again kind of playing too much into the hype of it. I'd rather um, just not score it. That way, I don't have to <laughs> defend yourself yeah, exactly. uh, later on. <laughs> I, I think, if anything, I will, I will say it's a four point five. At the least, uh, at most, it is uh, definitely I'd say, five. I'd say I'm on board with that. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I there was not anything that really bothered me. Uh, I mean, maybe he he does kind of pleasure himself a little too much in the movie that I'm like, I could have gone without that. Yeah. You know, but um, I under I mean, I understood the mean the reason of the scene. Like it wasn't just put in there just to be, hey, this is gross. This is what guys do on their lonesome or something like that. It had an actual meaning. Um, but even that, like it doesn't really negatively impact the film too much for me. So yeah, that's about where I land on it, I guess, score wise. Yeah, I, I think the only way you don't like this movie is that you don't like black and white movies. You don't like stuff shot in older time periods. Even possibly if you're not a huge slow burn fan. That too. Um, because, I mean, it, even though it's only like an hour, it's an hour and 49 minutes, I think that the the parts where people might struggle is the first 30 to 40 minutes of the film. Yeah. Because that is definitely the slowest because that's before anything really kind of starts. It's establishing everything. It's establishing the island. It's establishing the tasks. It's establishing the relationship between Ephraim and Thomas. Uh, but once they kind of start getting to the point where 
they've got no rations and they've got no help coming that it, it starts going and taking a turn and it and that last hour or so moves by pretty quick yeah it, it definitely does well do you have any final thoughts uh, uh to talk about in the movie uh not really okay I, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to force people to watch it? Yeah. Now, uh, this is a, a funny story, and I don't know um, if uh, Izzy has told you this yet, but when uh, I – what was I – I was driving her. Was that – it must have been when I picked her up from work uh, this week or something. Um, and I mentioned that you and I had watched it. Oh no no no! It was actually no. It was the it was uh, it was Valentine's Day itself because I drove her down to the brewery. Oh, she was not happy with. Yeah. Uh, okay, so she did tell you, because <laughs> like she's like, you guys watched that without me. I was like, I didn't even know you were interested, and uh, I told her I'd watch it, <laughs> which I will. Right, right, and and she was she was ready to murder you. Uh, so well, I, I told her I was like, hey, we gotta we gotta do our thing. <laughs> We got to record. We needed something to record. That's um, right. That's right. So uh, you'll pay for that one later, I'm sure. Yeah. Or if you haven't paid for it already. Ah, we'll watch it again. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week. I know we only did one movie, but, uh, you know, I, th- I thank Leslie for joining me for the first half of this uh, discussing Star Trek Picard. Um, you know, reach out to us and tell Pat to start watching Star Trek so we can start getting him involved on that. I will not. <laughs> um, but we appreciate it. I know that this, this was probably a much longer episode than uh, originally intended. We are hoping to just get back to only one Star Trek review per episode uh, since we you know, had a special recording last week. Um, we'll get back to recording some more uh, film ones. I know we got plenty other movies to, to watch that we haven't watched yet. And, uh, we, we look forward to it. We are also about a month away from, uh, reaching our year mark. Uh, I believe I started this podcast the last week of March and it's hard to believe it's almost been a year. So, uh, appreciate everybody listening and, uh, checking us out. Uh, you can follow us on Podbean. um, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. We are doing a push uh, kind of contest to get to 2,000 followers on Twitter. And actually, we are not far away from 1,000 downloads total. So I'm kind of hoping we hit both marks. Uh, we're about 23 people away on Twitter from a, from a thousand, or 2,000 followers. And we are about 80 plays away from 1,000 downloads overall. Um, and we are going to be doing a giveaway for the 4K digital copy of Joker, um, starring Joaquin Phoenix, who won Best Actor for his role in that. So uh, to kind of enter that, you have to follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook. The Subscribe to the podcast. And uh, if you're using iTunes, re- leave us a rating and review. I won't really hold you to it if you're following us on Google Play or, or Spotify, um, since it's a little bit harder to rate on there. And... Um, Leave us a, a, that rating and review so we can kind of boost our numbers up and help make the podcast more discoverable for other people. Oh, and we can get some better recording equipment. Yes, yes. We we have uh, plans to, of course, get a mic. I would like to at some point get uh, possibly a soundboard even. Uh, and all that, of course, costs money. So we uh, 
we need some money, but we're not going to, you know, do anything out of our means, but we're still small. We're hoping to grow more of this in our second year and uh, have some some better, more content for you guys. Have a studio. Yeah, a studio would be great, but <laughs> we'll, we'll have that worked out here sooner than later. So, all right, guys, we will see you next time.